Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I'm joined by Josh Rogan, excellent reporter, columnist, and contributor for The Washington Post and CNN. This is episode 32. On the media's deference to Fauci, the awful COVID lab leak coverage, source bias and confirmation bias, we start with the very complicated issue of covering an Olympics in China. I want to start uh, with the Olympics, which which kick off this week. Um, and the Olympics are are sports over, over at NBC Sports. Um, you know, there's the Today Show and Nightly News. That is news. But it is all sort of ultimately under the same umbrella. And uh, And I do want to talk about that whole way of complicating things in the media world these days now where so many things are under so many or so few umbrellas. Um, but I want to talk about the Olympics because normally the news channel that you know NBC will go and we'll cover it and we'll go all around wherever the host country is and and you know put all their resources towards it that is definitely not happening here for a variety of reasons but what do you make of the line that they are going to be really try to walk here the the very thin needle they're trying to thread right right it's a crucial question because you know this is not the first Olympics Games that has been mired in the controversy of the brutal dictatorship that's hosting it, uh, but it is the worst, right? And so this is not the first time this media or any other corporate sponsor of the Olympics has had to grapple with the idea that they're paying money, not just participating, but funding a regime that's committing atrocities and then going over there to celebrate that regime uh, for whatever benefits they think that gets them. Uh, but this is the worst. This is the first one where there's a credible accusations of genocide going on at the exact same time in the exact same country where the Olympics is happening. And as you rightly point out for news organizations, it's doubly troubling because NBC purports to be an objective news organization, yet they have a financial stake in the outcome. And they've spent billions of dollars on future Olympics, not just this one. And they're in a tough spot because the International Olympic Committee is a deeply corrupt organization and always has been. And the reason that the IOC even prefers <laughs> dictatorships is because it enables and facilitates and actually uh, ramps up the, the opportunities for all sorts of different corruptions. And NBC is paying for the privilege of being part of that. Now, that's not to say that news organizations can't have business and editorial divisions, right? I've worked for eight major news organizations in 18 years, Steve. So I, I have seen, you know, business side of all of those organizations do things that the editorial side would not agree with. And the way that you deal with that, frankly, in that kind of a business is that you build a firewall. And the reality is that sometimes that firewall bleeds into editorial. And that's where the corruption is. It's not about can we have a business side of a media organization that does things? It's a, when, at what point does the editorial get affected? And I've seen that happen too, by the way, in my past experiences. So when NBC says, oh, well, you know, we're going to mention, we might mention the, listen, if it comes up, we'll mention the genocide. <laughs> this is their new person. And uh, I saw like a, Bob Costas was on uh, CNN talking about yeah. this. He's like, he's like, that's how they're going to do it. They're going to like force themselves to talk about human rights if only if they have to only as little as they have to that's atrocious that's a an abdication of our responsibility as journalists to speak truth to power and to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable now you could say that oh well the olympics are not supposed to be political that's what the ioc says but that's crap you know because they've always been political because the chinese and this one is political because the chinese communist party made it political. And this is really the most important point, because a lot of people are looking at the American organizations. Let's look at this Chinese Communist Party, because these games are not run by the Chinese government. They're not run. They're run by the party. Look at the committees. It's all yeah. party members. Look at the decision makers. Look at the guy that uh, Peng Shui, the tennis star, accused of, of sexually assaulting her before she was disappeared by the party and the IOC helping her. Yeah, she's that was a party guy who's in charge of that sports enterprise. So the party runs everything in China. Now, what that means for us is that they will use political coercion to silence and threaten and intimidate anybody who participates. And they've done that first with the sponsors. They didn't have to do that with the IOC because the IOC was already corrupted. <laughs> uh, but they did have to do that with the athletes. And they did that two ways. One, by threatening them on the record that they could be arrested. OK, if they say anything that breaks the CCP's delicate sensibilities, delicate and paranoid, which is almost anything. 
Okay, then they're going to make them download a health app, which Citizen Lab, the uh, independent research group said, is riddled with security vulnerabilities that's going to put all of their speech at risk. It has a political sensitive keyword list. It allows you to report on the guy next to you if you hear him talking about human rights so that the police, the Chinese authorities can come down and tell you what's what. And, you know, it's if you, it, it's 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 like they it's almost as if Xi Jinping like took 1984 Orwell's 1984 handed it to his guys and said hey do you think we could really make this work you know do you think we could really put this into and they were like well I don't know but what you know let's give the college a try you know <laughs> it's 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 crazy I mean so many different points here to bring up let me ask you this so because you mentioned yeah. the way you know working for all these different news organizations sure. and uh you wrote a column uh that came out uh, a week or two ago uh called the Waging Olympics has become an exercise in genocide denial and you wrote it's one thing to stay silent about mass atrocities it's quite another thing to actively help the oppressors whitewash their crimes and it brings up something that I write a, a lot about in Fourth Watch, which is that people talk about bias, political bias or various biases. But one bias that I don't think gets talked about enough is the bias of omission. You know, what doesn't get talked about when it comes to news, you know, newspapers or channels. And and you, you the way you've described NBC's plan with addressing this, it's 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 strikes me as very much a, a bias of omission here. I mean, yes, they are. The, the, I don't necessarily expect that while they're they're covering, you know, the slalom, they're going to or the luge, they're going to start talking about, uh, you know, about uh, human rights abuses in China. I, I understand that that doesn't necessarily have to bleed into that. Um, and I don't fault them for that. But but when you're there with the Today Show or with Nightly News and you're you're covering it to this extent that NBC does, you know, the full force of it, how else I mean, how how can you get away with not talking about the reality of of the situation? Right, right. So first, we should say that the Olympics haven't happened yet, so we don't actually know how they're what they're going to do. So you know, the problem is that now that we've it, it's it with the problem with the genocide is that it's a, a unique category of atrocities. That sure, we, yeah, we had the Olympics in Sochi, and Russia does horrible human rights crap to its own people. You know, in in two thousand and eight, I remember very vividly the Tibetans were uh, in the streets, you know, begging for attention during the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Uh, but even then, the Chinese Communist Party sort of paid lip service to the idea that they were taking these issues seriously. Right. Now they're threatening to jail you, including journalists. OK, and that's serious. That's not a, a media issue. That's a, a diplomacy issue. Right. We can't we should have, a, first of all, a, 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 a diplomatic intervention to tell the Chinese Communist Party that they are not allowed to jail U.S. journalists for exercising free speech. OK, uh, that is not being done. Where is the Biden administration on that? Now, NBC, right, they have a choice to make. They haven't done it yet. But what it will be obvious uh, during the games that everyone else, every other channel will be talking about the genocide, because as you rightly point out, when it comes to real crimes against humanity, neutrality favors the oppressor. This is classic Ellie Wiesel, right? That's why I interviewed in my column Elisha right. Wiesel, the son of Ellie Wiesel, right, who doesn't is not a China expert. No, you don't know. Right. But he knows a genocide or, let's say, a mass atrocity, a crime against humanity when he sees one. And he called on all the athletes to do something right, because the athletes are actually in the worst position. They have the least amount of power. Right. The corporations have the most amount of power. They're the ones with all the money and the influence. So how why are we always like, bang, uh, you know, getting on the athletes to put their careers at risk, maybe get arrested when it's actually the companies and the corporations who have the most responsibility and the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, culpability because they're giving money to the genocidal regime for the privilege of censoring themselves if that's what happens. Right. So. Yeah. So there. So, yes. What's the balance? Yeah, we could debate what's the balance between talking about human rights. But but if you don't talk about it, yes, you are not just committing. That's an active act. That's an active omission that uh, is turning away from a genocide on our watch. And that's something that I just think if you look at the history of Olympics, you look at the history of genocides that people can't undo. You can't unring that bell. And that will look very bad in the light of history. I know which side of history I want to be on, you know, and I think NBC has a really, really tough choice to make. Uh, but, you know, I hope they'll make the right choice and do the right thing and not ignore the genocide. Well, yeah, and we'll see. I, you know, the the other sort of elephant in the room here is the context of of this. You know, the, we it would be one thing if if, if um, 
let's just say COVID never happened. And now we're in a situation where there's an Olympics and they are, they really are sending their entire NBC news department into, into China and there's full crowds. And, and then, right. and then, you know, maybe talking about uh, genocide would be even harder to do, but the reason we, we are, they are not doing that. They're doing a much more muted is because of, of COVID. And, and that brings me to the lab leak and, and to China's responsibility when it comes to the pandemic overall. Um, we don't need to get into the science of it, although I will point people to the April 2022 column that you wrote um, about State Department cables that warned of safety issues at the Wuhan lab um, when they were studying back coronaviruses. And you've written uh, really, I mean, I would say that was one of the early reports on it, but you've done great work uh, on that overall. And it's one of these stories that I'm still a little bit confused why there's a real reluctance among the media, I would say the consensus media, to cover this, this to give it the sort of due that it's owed, the, the idea of the implications of a lab leak that, again, not a bioengineered, you know, Chinese weapon, but a, a maybe an accidental lab leak that that caused what has been the prevailing story that they have covered for the last two years now. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And I know intimately how this story got so messed up because I was in the middle of it, as you pointed out. And, you know, just to make your segue work, you know, the, the what ties these two issues together is that, you know, for the party, everything is political. The, the Olympics is political and science is political and the coronavirus pandemic is political because their only priority is their own interest, the party's interest, not the country's interest, not the world's interest, definitely not humanity's interest. And so when it comes to anything that interacts with the outside world, their first instinct is to lie and cover up and protect themselves and then to bully and bribe anyone who can be bullied and bribed into following the Chinese Communist Party party line. OK, and that's what happens with the lab leak. And the reason it worked, OK, the reason it succeeded in in doing what Chinese influence operations are designed and organized and funded to do, which is to. Uh, poison our information space with their disinformation. Okay, they control their information space. You got a Chinese Communist Party that's built its own internet. All right, in the, inside China, you there's only one paper, there's only one narrative. Okay, right. here in America, we have a free-ish press. Okay, people are allowed to report whatever they want. Clearly, it, it's funny. There's there's a, there's an ongoing uh, you know cable news show literally called Democracy in Peril. Uh, and then when you compare it to maybe what life is like in China, it's a, it maybe puts a little bit of a perspective on things. But okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, it's worse. It's, there's no equivalence. So all these people are saying, oh well, you know, we've got problems in in the Western world. We've got problems. Sure, yes, we've got several problems, right? We actually talk about them pretty openly. I would say some people, right? And in China, no. If you mention that the government has any problems, you disappear. Your your life is over. That's how it works. That's how it's a. That's how uh, uh, the it's it's run like a mafia organization. If you speak up, you get whacked. Okay. That it doesn't matter if you're the vice president of the country or you're some guy on the internet. Now, how that relates to this is that at that time when in those first confusing, really tragic, really dystopian months of the pandemic, the Chinese government was doing everything possible it could uh, to spread disinformation. And some of that disinformation involved, don't take a look at these labs. Whatever you do, don't take a look at these labs. They weren't even saying it was the market. They weren't even saying they knew what it was. Maybe it came from a frozen food package uh, from some other country. They put out a bunch of ridiculous right. theories. But the, their main thing was the cover-up was pointed at the lab. The database went offline. They wouldn't release the science. They jailed the the journalists who wrote about it. They, you know, this, this was, if you just look at their actions, the cover-up was centered on the lab. Now, the reason that that now everybody sort of knows, but you couldn't know at the time, is that that, be, that became the narrative here was two, two things. One, that our government couldn't talk about it at first because they were being blackmailed over our PPE and our masks, like our masks, you know, right. that were in those Chinese factories. So the Chinese government was actually blackmailing the U.S. government. And that that was part of why that. And then once they did come out with it, well, they you know, it was Pompeo and Trump who came out with it. So they got attacked and it became politicized. And then the thing that really sealed it was the scientists. Right. And these are the scientists who were the best friends in the lab. And I've talked about this for over a year. 
Uh, and and finally, I think it's really sinking through that these guys had a huge conflict of interest, okay, because they were the best friends of the Wuhan lab and they're they were involved in the research that may have. We don't know because we don't know what the origin is because there's never been a real investigation. That's an important that's an important point. You know, they, we don't know. They, yeah, right. There's circumstantial evidence that it could have been related to the lab in some way, an accident, uh, uh, an experiment that went through. Humanized mice that made it more dangerous, known as gain of function research. It could have been a natural virus that was in the lab that escaped from the lab. But the fact that the bat coronavirus lab doing bat coronavirus research to make bat coronaviruses more dangerous to humans was within 10 miles of the outbreak is not a coincidence. Okay. Somehow the most dangerous virus we've ever seen ever got to the same city as all of the dangerous bat coronavirus experiments. And the details of that have never been released because our government. Our NIH, our NIAID, our health officials, our public officials that were paid by the U.S. taxpayers who are distributing hundreds of millions of dollars to dig up virus that is funded by the U.S. taxpayers have never shown us the documents to this day. They refuse. And what's that about? How is that possible? And how do we have a media uh, environment where nobody cares? Right. How well, is it that how yeah. is this is what amazes me, because I exist in this world where I uh, you know, uh, wrote a book about the U.S.-China relationship, which I thought laid out a lot of circumstantial evidence that we should simply look into these labs. Why not look into these labs? It's like John Stewart said, if the outbreak of chocolatey goodness happened in Hershey, somebody pe would probably say, hey, let's take a look at their chocolate factory. I, I not to say we know it. Yeah, no, the John so, Stewart. But put aside Occam's razor. I'm talking about then you add to what we just learned. And I, I, I direct people to Nicholas Wade's latest piece in City Journal. And I direct people to the latest uh, disclosure of emails in The Intercept, you know, which show that, first of all, the scientists who attacked, I'm not saying that they were silent. They actively went after anyone who mentioned the lab, including me, by the way. Uh, were You're totally Fauci and Collins went after Well, Dazic, yeah. Peter Dazic of the Health Line, has right. been insulting me publicly for years for suggesting that we should look into the lab, but also Fauci and Collins never attacked me because they don't know who I am, but but I think they do. Maybe they do, actually. They seem but, very online. Like but they, they'll attack they, any politician or anybody who, who says, hey, can you tell us more about what you were doing in those Chinese? What? What? How dare you? It's the arrogance. Of You're questioning science. Even in on in, in testimony, they'll find. Well, Rand Paul, you're just trying to raise money now. Is Rand Paul trying to raise money off of? Yes. But that doesn't mean he's not right in this one instance. Right. And, you know, and and it doesn't mean he's 100 percent right either. It means that he's raising questions that deserve answers. And because there's no pressure from the Democrats on people like Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, they there are tons and tons of documents that would tell us a lot about what was going on in these dangerous bat coronavirus research experiments that they simply refuse to give us or have to be FOIA'd and lawsuited and, and redacted and unredacted and leaked. And it's yeah. just insane. It's ridiculous. And that is and, and that the is reason they're allowed now. to get away with that is partially because the mainstream media doesn't care about this, or at least most of them. And that that I think is the key point, right? I mean, look, I I, I don't know exactly about the Democratic, you know, why they are not so so interested in doing it. Um, I think I knew back in I know. 2020 because it was Trump. But well, hold on. I, I do yeah. want to ask about that. But let, let me just okay. say this. I, I, I think because there is the John Stewart argument, which is the essentially circumstantial evidence argument. Occam's razor. Right. I think. Yeah. And I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, we've seen things about like the Furin cleavage site, which, again, I don't want to get into science. And I will say without getting it into my sources, I've tried to say, what's the other point of view here? And yes, it, it, I, I think that there is it's it's. I'm not 100% convinced it came from the lab, and I know you're not saying that it is either, but I think the, the point is like, there are these documents, there, there is a clear lack of interest in it, and what, it, what really bothers me the most is the way the story was covered at first, which was not that, you know, hey, people are saying it came from the lab, we don't know that, you know, we, we don't know yet, here's what we do know, it may happen. No, no, it was, this is a dangerous conspiracy theory, shut it down, get it banned from social media. And that was not coming from the Democrats, that was coming from the media. Can I, can I slightly disagree with you? Sure. B because, you know, in that, in that environment, that, that message that this is like a racist conspiracy theory, as we now know, was put forth by scientists who were saying privately to each other in emails that hey it might have come from the lab. You know, there there that's what the new inter the emails released show. And I encourage everyone to read the Intercept article about this because it's very clear that these people were saying something in private that they were not saying in public. They were misleading the journalists, and the journalists fell for it. Now, 
That's a problem, but scientists say they've changed their mind, uh, you know, un, yeah, un, you know, could it, but can we just lay out the just because we have a little, a little time to actually sure. debunk that right now? You know, we're talking about the discussion on January 31st between all these scientists who I've been on TV with who have looked down their nose at me and said, how dare you talk about science? What are you, a scientist? It definitely didn't come from the lab. Stop asking questions, okay? On CNN, that happened to me many times. The same scientists on January 31st are saying to each other, 60-40, uh, 70-30, it probably came from the lab. And then, what, three days later, they're, they've switched their position. And then two weeks after that, they write a letter in The Lancet, organized by Daszak, the most conflicted person in the story, saying that it's a conspiracy theory, okay? Right. Did they change their mind in those three days? It doesn't pass the laugh test. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. And so, and even if they did, to say that other people who came to the, their first conclusion are conspiracy theorists is dishonest and misleading. Now, what, my point is that I don't blame the media for falling for that as much as I blame them for not correcting themselves now, because back then we didn't have a lot of information. But two years later, we have, we have the emails. We have the, 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 the evidence that shows that these doctors all friends of Fauci and Daszak were talking with Fauci and Daszak about this, worked together to drive a narrative that turned out not to, to be very that turned out to be very misleading. So why can't the media correct itself? And that gets to the core of your problem is that our media is so bifurcated that we're all on teams. And once you're on a team, the only uh, point is uh, the most important thing is for your team to be right and the other team to be wrong. And, you know, so in, in, in a lot of cases, the mainstream media versus the conservative media just becomes about confirmation bias. And that's really what's going on here. Is that two years later, how come this doesn't get covered? You've got new emails from uh, Anthony Fauci talking about the origin. No one even writes about it except for The Intercept. There's a reason for that, because people don't want to admit when they were wrong. And that's the integrity of journalism. The integrity of journalism is not being right all the time. OK, I'm not right all the time. I've been wrong. If you Google my name, you will see there are instances throughout my 18 years of journalism where I've been totally wrong. OK, the integrity is in when the new information comes in that you reevaluate your assumptions and come to the, to be right at the end, to be right when you're when the when everything's finished. And yeah. that's what we've failed to do, because we don't want to admit that maybe the conservative media might have been right about this one thing. Don't get me wrong. I think there are plenty of things that the conservative media has been wrong about that they haven't owned up to either. But, you know, who's doing the sniping on the conservative media, you know, and then the conservative media is doing the sniping on the mainstream media and we're all just talking past each other. And a major national security and public health issue can never really be discussed, except here, except on this podcast. Except this here. Is, yes. And a few. I mean, obviously, you've, you've had some others. appearances on the Megyn Kelly show, which I think that, you know, we got this started with you in, in uh, I believe it was April of last year, um, when I really think that this this started to bubble up more on the mainstream in terms of the Wuhan lab. But but no, I, I think that well, my book uh, came out, Chaos Under Heaven, available yes, now. I forever. Talk about that. Yes, still are, available. Still um, might be a coincidence, it, it, but. It's such an own goal to not admit when you're wrong. I think that 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 there's this perception, and I know you know from being in newsrooms at CNN and other places that that there is a a a, a real reluctance to admit you're wrong because you you think that that will have some sort of reverberating effect on on the public's trust in you. And I think it's actually just the opposite. I think the public would trust the media much more if they say, "Hey, we were wrong about this, and now we're going to get it right," rather than try to say, "Oh, we got this wrong. Let's just shut it up and never talk about it again." Right. Because um, be, it's becoming more and more obvious, especially as we have independent news sources that can can grow in power and call them out. Coming up. What is up with the media seemingly afraid to criticize Dr. Anthony Fauci? That's next. But first, there was a story that was bubbling up last week with a bunch of media members and media-adjacent pundits sharing a local Michigan TV station's article about mask mandates in schools. I believe it started with a tweet from Shannon Watts, the founder of a gun control group, which had 5,000 retweets. New study, she tweeted, virus spread was 62% higher in school districts without mask rules. The tweet links to an article from ABC 12 based out of Flint, Michigan. The second major tweet that went viral was from Heidi Presbella of NBC News, sharing a very similar sentiment and linking to the same story. She tweeting, new virus spread was 62% higher in school districts without mask rules. Now, the first problem with these tweets is if Presbilla or any of her blue check followers bothered to click the link, they'd see this absolutely was not, quote, new. The article was from October, more than three months ago. And if you watch the accompanying video and no shot at local news reporters who work very hard, but you can see it's not the highest quality journalism. The, the whole thing made a passing reference to a University of Michigan study of Michigan schools, but had no data in the actual piece. 
Well, I went and checked out the actual report. And yes, you can see that in September, Michigan schools with, quote, few mask rules had more cases per week than those that fit into the, quote, masks required category. Should also be noted that schools with partial mask rules, whatever that means, had about the same as the mask required schools. Even then, though, the report does note that, quote, districts with mask rules may also have other prevention measures that can contribute to lower transmission levels. Well, fast forward to the latest version of this same report, which is still not, quote, new. It's from December. Now, the data is a lot more messy. Or if you have a point of view that you're trying to further when it comes to masks in schools, it's counterproductive. Check out how the study has evolved. By November, schools with, quote, no masks rules had the same number of cases as those with, quote, masks required. And as of December, the schools with, quote, masks required actually had more cases than those with no mask rules at all. So after countless media members and pundits and politicians and activists shared an old story from October thinking it was new that proved mask mandates work, the truth is that the same data, when viewed accurately, makes the opposite point. Heidi Prisbilla and her colleagues at NBC and her colleagues more broadly in the Acela media, they tell us they're very worried about misinformation. They tell us they are the ones who we should trust to determine what misinformation is and what it isn't. The consensus is that masks work and mask mandates in school help stop the spread, but the data shows otherwise. What effect does this misinformation have on our school policy in America? What effect does it have on the perception of terrified parents? The counter-consensus is winning because our consensus elites are sloppy, closed-minded, and often wrong. More with Josh coming up after this, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Josh Rogan. I look at like Dr. Fauci as someone who I, I'm sure Dr. Fauci is a nice guy. Yes. I don't get the deference for Dr. Fauci. I don't get the, the idea that it's not just the media saying we can never be wrong. The media having this, this strong feeling, and again, most of the media, that we can't push him in a, in a somewhat challenging interview almost across the board. I just don't understand what that mentality is when you have someone who's as powerful as he is, right. and, you know, essentially un, untouchable. That's what that, it's the impunity of it and the arrogance of it. And, you know, when you so there are examples, I saw Pamela Brown on CNN grill Francis Collins on this, and she did an excellent job. And she kept saying, well, you know, what is the reason why we can't know more about this research? Oh, Pam, don't worry about it. We got this under control. Everything's fine. I'm going <laughs> to retire. Goodbye. You know, and yeah. when then, then so there, there are examples, right? Um, it's just tough because, like you said, there's been there's so much, you know, hate spewed at anyone who doesn't toe whichever side you're on the, the, right. the official team line. I'm just not on either team, so I just don't care. You know what I mean? I'm just going to say what my reporting bears out and let the chips fall where they may. And uh, that tends to be the right approach, you know, for me anyway. Just look at that that Fauci Rand Paul hearing, OK, where Roger Marshall and Rand Paul both made runs at Fauci. OK, now I say they all Rand Paul and Marshall both made mistakes. Right. Rand Paul. Uh, you know, he over politicized it. OK, he gave Fauci an opening. And what did Fauci do? He held up a piece of paper that showed that he can't he printed it out. I know he had props. He didn't think about it. he wasn't like, oh, Rand Paul's attacking me. I better say he's he printed it out in advance and came prepared and held it up for the cameras. OK, now all I'm saying is that they're both playing politics. OK, that seems obvious. And Roger Marshall made a mistake. He was talking about Fauci's personal financial disclosure. He got a fact wrong. And that's all the media ran with rather than Hey, what are they really asking about? Hey, Anthony Fauci, do you want to address all of this new information that shows that like the narrative that you've been pushing about the origins? And yes, I want to say here that like I think that every public official is uh, 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 most public officials are trying to do the right thing and they're all flawed. I've never met a public official, a, a president, a congressman, a senator who is not who is perfect. I never met one ever. I never met a journalist who was perfect. So when we canonize these people, when we put them on pedestals and venerate them as deities, it's always bad journalism. That's a that's a necessity. And that happens again on both sides. So this is my pitch. This is my pitch to both mainstream media, to the conservative media. Let's depoliticize the COVID origin issue. Maybe this can be the thing 
that actually brings us together into one reality after four years of nonsense. Maybe this can be the thing that we can all agree is in our national security and our public health. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the best part. It's knowable. People yeah. are like, oh, we're never going to find out. Blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. Something happened. It's not a scientific question. It's not, oh, Fear and cleavage sites. What are those? Well, one scientist says it's probably natural. One scientist says it's not. What are you going to do? No, this is a, a forensic thing that happened and it requires a forensic investigation. You know, what's funny about that is that the only forensic investigation inside the government that it was even started was at the FBI. And, at, you know, just everyone Google this story because it's kind of crazy that, you know, when it, when the Biden administration got like guilted into actually doing a intelligence review of the for COVID origins, both theories, right? That was when it changed, really. When Joe Biden got up on TV, he's like, listen, there's two theories the, the, connected to a lab, not somewhere in nature. We're going to check them both out. Neither one is a conspiracy theory, right? That means he's not a conspiracy theory because Joe Biden would have to be in on the conspiracy with Donald not Trump and Mike Pompeo. Theory. Right. So unless you're arguing that Joe Biden is in a conspiracy with Donald Trump, which doesn't make any sense at all, you have to admit that the lab leak theory is not okay. So then, why shouldn't we check it out? We should check it out. And at, when the FBI actually, it, what what the emails reveal is during that intelligence review, they're the only ones that actually asked NIH and Fauci and Collins for anything. None of the other intelligence, seventeen intelligence agencies, sixteen were like, Meh, we can't find anything." They're, and they're looking under the streetlight for their keys. They're like, "Why are you looking under the streetlight for your keys?" Well, the light's really good here. You know, and then the FBI is like, hey, uh, Fauci and Collins, can I have some documents? Not that we've seen those documents, right? They're still secret. And they came to a medium level of confidence that the lab was involved. That's better than the low level of confidence that the other four agencies had. So th that's just to say, look what a little digging can do. And I know, I know, FBI, we, everyone's got a feeling about the FBI. That <laughs> the MAGA people don't like it because they think it's the deep state. The liberals don't like it because they think it's a secu the security state, right? The, yeah. the the Democrats seem to love it when it comes to Russia, but they don't like it when it comes uh, to China. Saying, it depends on what the issue is. Then, then the so here's the switch. thing. So yeah. here's the thing. So everybody, hear me out. Progressives, liberals, conservatives, Trumpians, let's let the FBI have a crack at this thing, okay? Because they seem, to the Trumpians, they seem to agree with you, right? To the progressives, you know, yes, let's give them a chance to redeem themselves and do something without... Uh, uh, you know, at, what are we going to do? Just throw away the FBI for the rest of the best investigated organization in the world. And to the Democrats, it was good for sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. If you want to use the FBI against Trump for Russia, then you have to let the FBI do this investigation on the origins of COVID, wherever it, it's not a target. It's not to target Fauci. I'm not on the jail Fauci train. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying wherever the chips fall. Yes. No, 100 percent. And and on the media side, you know, if, if you don't push for it, it's not going to happen either. So. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, I, and that but you, you you raised a good point here because your book was Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, she in the battle for the so 21st much. century. How, how much of this do you think was because it was Trump? And, and I guess, you know, the other question, and I mean, do you know from, you know, conversations you have with those in the media that it was Trump based, you know, in the sense that Trump was pushing the, the lab lead? Yeah. Let's get a little bit deeper into this, since you're interested in the media angle of this. So there were there were two things mainly going on. One was that the science writers, okay, pandemic hits, everyone's like, let's let's ask the science writers what they think, right? Yeah. And and science journalism is somewhat bifurcated from like political journalism, just like finance journalism and you know tech journalism, and it's just the way it is in our media environment, right? You, it's a different animal in a way, even though it's sometimes under the same roof of the same organizations. And all the science writers went to their best sources, Fauci. And Tazik and wrote that the lab leak theory was a conspiracy theory. Right. And w w the way we know this is because who was the Don McNeil, the guy who got fired from the New York Times later for an unrelated reason? Uh, he wrote this like mea culpa later, which is like, oh, maybe the, maybe I was maybe the lab leak theory deserves it a look, you know, a year later. Yeah. And in it, v the most unaware sentence was, well, at the time, I really believed my best sources, Fauci and Daz. He admitted it. That he went with his sources, Fauci and Death, and they would never Monopoly lie to me. On the sources, yeah. And so that's source cap bias, right? So there's confirmation bias. That's one thing. The other thing was source bias, and, and the science writers ran the story, and they were misled, and they got taken, they got took by their sources, they got captured. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 what happened. Then on the national security side, which is something I know a little bit more about, actually, uh, the intelligence community started leaking against the Trump people because they thought they were abusing the intelligent their intelligence product to push the lab leak. Now the Trump people were pushing the lab leak, but they really believed it. You know what I mean? So it's not right. like they 
But were they politicizing it? Yes, they were also politicizing it. And the intelligence people who are not supposed to be rebutting, even if they think their intelligence, get, they're not supposed to leak it, but that happens all the time in Washington. They leak that there's no evidence of the lab leak theory and all the na- half the national, most of the national security reports around where they're like, oh, there's no evidence. Trump was wrong. We get to write something mean about Trump. That's great. And so for those two reasons, the science writers and then don't get me started on the media writers. OK, they're the worst. OK, yeah. most of them anyway. Some of them I love you. Don't write bad things about me. But like the ones that wrote that, like anyone, you know, there, there are other ones. Columbia Journalism Review did a really good piece. We're like, hey, oh, wait a second. Let's take a look at this evidence. Right. Uh, other media uh, uh, watchdogs were were less scrupulous or less less diligent in looking through the actual material. I mean, there were fact checks, you know, quote unquote don't, fact oh, checks. I don't fact. want to put you in a bad position, but at the Washington Post and elsewhere, no that comment. Called it a conspiracy theory, and, and later had to correct it. No comment. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying, <laughs> but no. Yeah. So it was it was clearly coming from from a specific position that that this th- it became the the consensus. This is a conspiracy theory. In, among it was enforced. It was a it was a, a hive mentality, and that's always dangerous too. You know. And again, we've seen that on other stories, but on this one, it was sort of like, wait a second, this has a real impact. It's not just about blaming China. It's not just about politics. It's about figuring out how this happens so it doesn't happen again. You know, because the Fauci plan as he said in the New York Times pretty proudly, is to pour billions of more dollars into exact to expand this research. So don't you think we should figure out if this research contributed to the pandemic before we expand it, before we spend billions of dollars to expand it? Or do you want to do this every two years? You want to have this pandemic every two years like clockwork? Does that sound like fun? And, and and that's the thing. I mean, look, there are some stories that I criticize the media about that are really not that important, you know, that they're just sort of like, oh, you know, it's this Trump thing. Oh, we didn't actually say that. This is something that's obviously very important. It has it has completely upended our life probably forever. We, we I think the public deserves a curious and and, you know, uh, interested media in in digging into how this happened and and we need that i mean that's that's i think that, that there's no more important story than this one i would say for i agree for, the fourth watch lightning round is coming up but first josh is reporting on john Kerry back in 2013 and the odd media reaction to his exclusives your work on i think pushing those in power predated not just you know the pandemic or trump um, I, I remember, and I, I went back and looked this up, you know, when you were at the Daily Beast and hmm. you wrote a series of stories about John Kerry um, uh, based on a, 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 a sort of leaked audio that you had, um, one of the which, the one that really stuck out to me, because I remember this forever, was this Kerry sort of connecting Israel to an apartheid state, um, which yep. has become, you know, is is sort of, I don't want to say is code. I mean, it's pretty bl- explicit about, uh, you know, for, for those who who hate Israel and hate Jews um, to, to use that sort of language, among other stories you wrote. And I want to know a little bit about that story because it became a, a story <laughs> about a story. But it also, I, I just, I remembered it at the time, but it was amazing to look back on. And I don't want to call anyone <laughs> out, but like Dylan Byers, for example, one. writing yeah. stories essentially attacking you for writing yeah. the story. Um, and these are media reporters who, are, who, who, whether it was Obama and Obama's administration or whatever, really, uh, you know, showed a, a lack of interest in getting the truth. The truth didn't matter. It was, mm. it was how, why are we doing this exactly? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a callback, my friend. Wow. 2013 at the Daily Beast, I got a tip that John Kerry was giving a off-record speech at the Trilateral Commission, which is like this archaic Bilderberg kind of ridiculous <laughs> organization that meets in like hotel ballrooms and they, yeah. old, mostly old men, mostly old white men. But the, the Japanese were at this one. So just let's just say old men. And, uh, you know, the conspi- you know, are they conspiring to the world? No, they're just having a bunch. They're having a buffet. They're making contacts. They're doing some business. John Kerry is the featured speaker. It's off record. But, you know, the rule is everyone should know. That, uh, you know, it's the event organizer's job to enforce the off the record. If reporters walk in and they haven't agreed to uh, uh, the off record status and they haven't lied in getting into the then that those remarks are fair game. OK, so that's the principle that I used when I walked into the event. I went to the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. I just walked in. They didn't check. I just, I just nodded at the person. They're like, hey, how you doing? Good, good, good. Sat down <laughs> and. John Kerry is going through his spiel and he mentions that, you know, if Israel doesn't, if Netanyahu doesn't get his act together, that it's going to be an apartheid state. Now, I don't think John Kerry hates Jews. I don't think he hates Israel. I just think he's said what he really thinks, which is that the policies of the Israeli government at that time 
were racist, something I vehemently disagree with. But yeah. the point is, that's different from saying he hates Jews. But anyway, <laughs> he's this is he blurts this out. And I wrote the article and, uh, you know, it was a big story. Uh, and it was, but I, but the, I didn't know it was going to like the, the Kerry state department was going to go on the attack and they immediately, you know, contacted Dylan Byers, Josh Rogan snuck into the meeting, blah, blah, blah. He did something on tour as, and then of course, Michael Calderon and Huffington Post was like, no, 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 if Josh didn't lie, which I didn't. And if he walked in and if, if, you know, if he didn't agree to the terms and it's fair game, right. That's it, a pretty clear journalism role. It's what so the reason D- do. Dylan did that yeah. is because he was source greasing, right. So he's a media guy. So he's got to grease. He's got to write media stories. So he just lowered the bar to get to get like a little bit of like a tiny scooplet to attack another journalist, which is, you know, I guess is the bread and butter of a lot of media reporters. It doesn't make it right. Uh, and, you know, then that just brings down the. Re- but this is the games that children play. Like any t- it doesn't matter if it's the Trump people or the Biden people or the Obama people. You know, you write something that jams them up and they'll go to their favorite media reporter and try to smear you if they can. And that's comes with the territory. I mean, it's underhanded, but it comes with the territory. And that, and that was the original tactic, although Kerry did apologize for it publicly also. So it became Both, an, an even right. bigger story. But, but you know, the point is, like, that's what journalists should do. And and frankly, if, if you, you were your same reporter sneaking into where, you know, the Trump secretary of state, you know, saying something in private that he would never say publicly and putting that out there, no one in the media would be saying a peep about the sourcing or about well, how be a different story. You get you get the media criticism from the different side of the internet. You know what I mean? Sure. Like I, yeah. So I've been, I've been criticized from all sides, media reporters on all sides of the internet, which maybe means I'm doing something right, or maybe it means I'm doing something wrong. But but no, no. every every team's got its media critic lackey. Okay, so you you could be sure that yes, if I had snuck into you know uh, Trump Tower, there would be some media critic who would accuse me of some sort of wrongdoing for that. So, no, I don't think it's a partisan thing. I think it's, uh, you know, uh, journalists have to take a lot of crap in or- if they're pushing. And if you're not pushing, then you're not doing the job right. That's my view. OK, I know other people don't think that way. Some people think, you know, the, journal- the job of journalists is to calmly and dispassionately, you know, put put bricks into the wall of history. Here's another brick. Now a- AP is going to put this brick, then New York Times is going to put br- this. And we're just building a beautiful wall of history. And our job is to just build the strongest bricks possible, right? I get it. I don't think that's, that's maybe that's a different type of journalism. I'm an opinion columnist. You know, I am passionate about the things that I believe in. Uh, these things include protecting our security and our public health. They also include human rights and standing up for people who are suffering from atrocities. This is just my personality. And I'm lucky to have a job where I'm allowed to do that. Uh, but if you're talking about journalism writ large, we've lost the thread on what we're supposed to be doing, which is speaking truth to power, no matter what your style is. And if you're serving power, then you're not speaking truth to power. And, you know, that's I think that's one of the big rocks in our industry. I, I could not have said that any better. But let me ask you the last question before I get to the, the lightning round here. Six questions, 60 seconds. What why are you an opinion columnist? Because why are you not a news reporter? <laughs> I, mean, I was why, a news reporter why, for 15 you, years. Let me just let me just rephrase it. Why yeah. are you why are you portrayed that way by the Washington Post? I am not portrayed that way. That's my job. I was hired by the opinion team to be an opinion columnist. I'm that's my I work for the opinion side. I write opinion op-eds. They have a lot of reporting in them because I I I've, I spent my first 15 years. You know, this is not an un it, don't get me wrong, Steve. I believe that there's i say let a thousand flowers bloom right you can have straight news reporting you can have a straight opinion reporting you can have hybrid news and opinion you can have different formats you can have different platforms i don't even care if the legacy media or the new media or the conservative media thrives i'm for it all okay but what i'm saying is that we have to be transparent and then we have to have our 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 readers have some media literacy so what i am my job now is that i am an opinion columnist for the washington post i do a lot of reporting in my columns as is the washington post tradition dating back to walter pincus and al Kamen and you know bob woodward and you name it so we have a, a multi multi-decade david ignate there's a ton of amazing reporters who write opinion columns for the washington post i like to think that i'm following in that very long tradition. At least that's what I try. Now, the reason that I became an opinion columnist, if you're asking me about my personal story, uh, is because, well, two things. One is that I I wanted to keep progressing in this business. And I, you know, that's, you know, you ha- in order to do that, you have to get progressively 
more jobs, you know, so I yeah. had to write a book and get a scene. You know, I'm trying to make that. So it, it, there's a career path that happens. Right. And, and it leads you where it leads you. It's not like a, you, you think about it in 2004 and you're like, oh, I'm going to be a opinion columnist. Things happen. <laughs> right. Things happen in life. That's one thing. The other thing is that, like, you know, my influences are people like Hunter S. Thompson and who, who said that, you know, opinion, the only real objective journalism is box scores race car results and stock market tabulations, right? What Hunter S. Thompson said was objective journalism is a pompous contradiction in terms. Okay. Now, what I realized after I became an opinion columnist, just because of because that's like life happened, is that actually it's a much more honest way to do journalism because uh, when you're doing straight news reporting, the integrity is in taking your views out of the articles. Okay. And I did that. I tried my best. I promise you during my 15 years as a news reporter to understand my biases, understand my opinions, and then make sure that they didn't influence how the article came out. But it's a fool's error because you make a thousand choices in writing a news article that you can't separate your biases from who to interview, what to cover, what to write, how to frame it, what quote to put first, what quote to put, what quote not to use. So it's the integrity is in trying to do that. And I think a lot of people still do that. But for me, it's much easier to just be transparent about my opinions, to lay out my reporting and to, honestly engage the arguments against it and that's what a good opinion writer in my opinion is that yeah. not that you're like this i'm right all the time that you that you engage in the, in the intellectual marketplace of ideas uh transparently so that's what i'm trying to do now that's why when i talk to you or i talk to joe scarborough or joe rogan it's the exact same thing i don't say anything different because i'm being honest and that's the that's that's my only pl play at this point in my career is to try to be authentic and do the work OK, and, and then admit when I'm wrong, when I'm wrong, which I'm sure will happen sometimes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's it is. No, honestly, it, it, there's two things to it. Obviously, the, the fact that you honesty and transparency, it, it's it, it's so much better than the alternative. Of, That's all I got. Trying to pretend that they are an objective reporter and clearly are not. And then it's the other way also, because there's a lot of shitty columns out there that are just someone spouting off without the reporting that goes into it. I've written and, some of those, too. Nah, not much, not much. All right, all right, Josh. So much. To say. I I wish we had more time because I, I you know you're working for Jeff Bezos and that's a probably complicated. Forget it. We'll go do it another time. Let, let's get to uh, love Jeff thing. Bezos. Yeah, sure. yeah. Of course. He, you know. You want me to uh, say something about Jeff Bezos? He stood no, up no, for no. Jamal Khashoggi and he didn't have to do that. He traveled to Turkey and stood up for human rights when a Washington Post opinion columnist was chopped to bits by on orders from a. Crazy psychotic dictator Mohammed bin Salman and Jeff Bezos paid a price financially for that, and and he decided to stand on the side of journalism, and human rights. That didn't so, have anything. Anyway, to let's go. With, let's go to uh, the. Didn't have anything to do with the National Enquirer, you don't think? Well, apparently not. But I don't know that. I don't actually don't know that story. But apparently, that the sourcing for that was something else. But all right, that's what right. I the reporting. I don't know. That's that you you could. Apparently that had something to do with something other than Saudi. But my, I'm telling you my experience with Jeff Bezos. He did the right thing in a tough situation. Listen, you you get to write exactly what you want in the Washington Post, and I think that that is uh, that's an admirable thing, right? That there. too. So, um, okay, last thing: six questions, sixty seconds. Where were you born? Philadelphia. Well, to be honest, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I was raised in Lower Bucks County. Uh, go birds. Okay, uh, you're, an, you're an opinion columnist for the Washington Post. What is one benefit and one cost of the role? Uh, the benefit is I get to choose whatever I write. I don't have to follow the news. If I want to write about Myanmar or Tibet, I, I just do it. Uh, one of the downsides is that, uh, you know, I miss the, 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 the pace sometimes of really breaking news, like just, you know, that, that's not what I do anymore. I used to do that. I used to do all scoops and that, that, that's thrilling. And, uh, you know, I kind of miss it. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, my first mentor actually was EJ Dion. I interned for him at the Brookings Institution in the year 2000. Right. I was a George Washington University sophomore, and I walked into his office and I said, I live three blocks away. Can I have an internship? And he said, there's your chair. And today I work with him as an opinion columnist uh, at the Washington Post. His advice, which he gave me at that time, which I have always followed, is be kind. There are two ways to get ahead in Washington to be a jerk or to be kind to people. And I I've tried to choose the latter, and that's because he told me that. I love that. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Um, that's a good question. Uh, professionally or personally that may surprise people. Uh, Peter Thiel. And, okay. you know, I disagree with a lot of his politics. Uh, 
uh, you know, when it comes to sort of like even on foreign policy stuff. Um, but I, you have to admire that guy's ability to think outside the box and then to execute. And, you know, he's trying, like, I, you know, I've engaged a little bit with his, his staff and his people and him personally. Uh, I think that uh, what he's doing actually on the China issue, again, I don't agree with it hundred uh, percent shows that in, t- in the tech industry uh, you can stand up to China. And yeah. so I admire that. But again, on, on a lot of political issues, we're on totally opposite sides. And so I think that might be unexpected for some people. And I'm not endorsing any of those other things that no. that he does. But on the China issue, he's pretty good. Zero to one is a, is a fascinating book. Um, who's yeah. one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? That is a great question. I'm, I want to say my wife, Allie Rogan of PBS NewsHour, yes, who, but that seems a little bit... Uh, 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 um, maybe too personal, but uh, you could say it. But if it, uh, well, let me just choose one more. Um, no, I'll go with Allie Rogan. Check her out on Twitter at Allie Rogan. <laughs> uh, one great journalist. Friends. Excellent. Yes, I was going to ask you about. You and know, she wrote a book. It's called "Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss." Also available at Amazon or no, you know, like wherever books are sold, everywhere, <laughs> not just Amazon. That's everywhere. That's and, I was going to ask you about what it's like to, you know, be. It's in, famous in stories about famous women who have fought breast cancer uh, and the advice that they have for young women. And I know it's helped a lot of people and uh, I'm really proud of her for writing it. And uh, you should check it out. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I was going to ask you another question I ran out of time for was it being in a marriage of, of two journalists has got to be complicated, especially if two foreign affairs journalists, you know, might get messy. And again, well, we'll say no, I'll answer time. that one. I think it takes a journalist to marry a journalist. <laughs> Who wants to deal with a journalist? Nobody. <laughs> Definitely not non-journalists. So actually, it, it's it's kind of perfect, you know. And plus, yeah. we can go we can go to the events uh, together, and that's, that's awesome. a cheap, that's a cheap date. Last one. One year from today, one prediction for the media. One year from today. <laughs> well, let's put it this way: every one year from today, there will be uh, a darling of the media industry that doesn't exist now that will have arisen out of the ashes that will have arisen from nowhere like the phoenix based on some sort of hype that will uh crash a couple years later after the initial vc funding runs out (laughs) all right i like it josh thank you so much that's all i got thank you steve thanks so much to josh rogan go check out his book Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and rate, review, like, follow this podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.